And here's where Matthew writes to us. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Grass withers, the flowers fade away, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Amen, congregation. Amen. Amen. Be seated. Thank you. I'm going to try to do this without touching anything. This has not been a great week for me and computers anyway, okay? We have just completed or are about to complete a study on perhaps the greatest sermon ever written. Actually, at the time it was given, it wasn't even written yet. So we might even be able to say the greatest sermon, would we reach out and say ad-libbed? Now, if it had been someone else other than Jesus, yeah, then we could say that without notes, without research, even without much preparation, it could be called the greatest sermon ever ad-libbed. Not much doubt to that proclamation, I don't think. But Jesus had these words in his heart. They came from his Father in heaven. John 3 verse 34 says that one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. In other words, not only are the words Jesus gives us words of authority, but Jesus himself comes to us on authority from God. Verse 29 He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. We might say they could deduce from this, Jesus was not one of the scribes. He was something far greater. There was something unique about him, and they recognized that. Remember again now, in the chronology of the book of Matthew, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the Kingdom Manifesto, we we have labeled this for ourselves, it came early in Jesus' earthly ministry, arguably. At least this is the way it's been given to us through God's Word. And yet, honestly, no matter the time and the date of this timeless dissertation, Jesus stood out to many immediately because of what He had just spent time laying out for the people. And so it began. Over a three-year period of healings, of teachings, of feedings, of miracles, and some just plain, commonsensical approaches to life and how to live it. Then being treated unfairly, persecutions, and then unearthly beatings, and even his murder. Jesus the Christ became famous to many who heard him that day. So famous that they believed in him. They laid claim to him through faith. Some who actually heard him in those early days, maybe even they were beaten and killed for his cause as well. But for the most part, those who had heard this manifesto early in the book of Matthew were forever changed, good or bad. You see, as it states in our passage this morning, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. But we know... We understand not all who believed in, in him that particular day that they, he was there and they heard him, they didn't all believe on him as Lord and Savior. To that end, some 2,000 years later, things really haven't changed all that much, have they? But you see, many who heard those early statements from our great teacher and Messiah were also the ones who did the beating and the killing. 
The state, this statement reminds me of Luke 8, verses 4 through 8. This is the parable of the sower. As the sower spread his seed, some seed fell among the path and along the path and was trampled underfoot. Even the birds of the air ate up that seed. Some fell on rock, we might say rocky soil. You ever planted something in the soil that on the surface looked good, but there was rock just right up underneath the dirt there? You might get an immediate growth very quickly. You might get a little bit of root, but it doesn't last long because there's no way for the depth to take place in the root growth. They're never able to draw food or, or, or supplement for those roots and, and for the plant. So they just don't grow. They really never had a chance. Some seed the sower put out there were, were tossed into thorny areas. In other words, no chance to be allowed to grow. There was too much of the world's evil, the overgrowth, you might say, or even undergrowth, to allow it to grow properly. Therefore, it was killed off very quickly. And yet some of that seed fell in the fertile soil, and it yielded a hundredfold, meaning it grew and then some. As Jesus gave us this manifesto, this is exactly what was occurring to those who were hearing Jesus on that particular day in this, what we call, the Sermon on the Mount. So let's break this simple passage down just a little bit this morning. You know, trying to explain a passage of ten verses or more uh, can be fairly easy sometimes, much easier than just one or two verses. But this looks simple. This particular two verses, it looks so cut and dry as you read it. You grasp it, you think about it, and you move on to chapter 8. And yet there are some key words here this morning that we should look at a little bit to get an even deeper meaning behind these two verses. First, let me give you a little background on the situation. A profile of of a lot of the people probably in attendance who was hearing this Sermon on the Mount, okay? If you think about it, a lot of the people who heard Jesus' words, especially early on, I, I think they were ready for Him. They were ready for something. The Israelites had not heard from God for 400 years. They were hungry and thirsty for God's presence. Plenty of false wannabe prophets had come and they had gone and the people's hopes and desires had risen and fallen like waves in a stormy sea. Basically, they got nothing. They knew the last time that they had turned their backs on God might just have been the last straw for Him. So at times, in a last-ditch effort, They had thrown their beliefs into some of these prophets who were were really nothing to them as they looked back. And remember, hindsight's always 20-20. But they were desperate for something, some word from God to let let them know that He was still connected to them. They were growing ever more desperate. They had angered God and now they were getting to a point of almost defeated exasperation. But one fellow, a guy named John, a little rough around the edges, we could say, came literally out of nowhere and began to preach uh, that as, as it had been prophesied, he was one of a voice crying in the, of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord was his mantra. 
Okay, a little different than what they had heard before. At least he wasn't telling everyone he was the Messiah coming to save them. Then came Jesus. And yet look at how so many were viewing Jesus. Many thought and and, and did so clear on until he ascended back into heaven that he was going to take them out of Roman captivity. Nothing more, nothing less. He was going to lead them to freedom out of slavery, both actual slavery and even mind-perceived slavery. For I think that just the thought of having to answer to the Romans alone was reason to see the Romans as slave drivers and the people of Israel as slaves. Perception of slavery, if you will. But it was very real to the people of Israel. And just like it had been so long before with the Egyptians, this Jesus was going to be Moses II, if you want to call him that. Clearly a leader for the people, but simply one to bring them out of 400 year or longer bondage. Then there were others who had listened faithfully to the prophets of old, who who listened to this John, the Baptist he was known as, because he was going around baptizing people for the forgiveness of their sins. This was a new end. This was a new approach. They hadn't heard this before. And they were coming to him in scores. Spiritual revolution was taking place. They believed that indeed one had come in the form of this man that was going to lead them. Finally, they wanted him to so badly because one finally began to talk like he really knew what he was talking about. Not about following the law and the sacrificial system that they had known for so very long. Had nothing to do with the literally hundreds of laws that these men called Pharisees had concocted to keep the people uh, in this again perceived slavery. This wasn't even a Roman thing. This was a pharisaical thing. And yet this guy, John, spoke of one who would come. Never about himself, but one whose shoes he was unworthy to tie. The one, the Lamb of God, we see him described by John even, as in John 1.29, who had come to save the world. Perhaps more frustration for the people. Maybe he wasn't really the one that they had hoped for after all. Perhaps more exasperation for the people. Then came Jesus. I think that upon hearing of this Lamb of God, the chief and the high priest maybe even have begun to take a little more notice of of, of what was going on in the Israelite world here. Who knows? Maybe the Romans did as well. There was so much talk about this guy Jesus beginning to be heard by these higher-ups, none of which sounded very promising to them. sounded more and more like a threat as time went on was coming from him. Was he a spiritual revolutionist or one who would organize the people into an army that would try to retake Israel from the Romans. On top of that, there were still just enough folks who looked to John the Baptist as their leader, maybe even their Messiah. Things were happening, and for many, these things were not good. 
For others, maybe it was just another one of those fellows that had talked a lot and, and basically said nothing. On to the next frustrating Messiah wannabe. For the Roman authorities, maybe this Jesus was one just to kind of keep an eye on, not much more. If he started building an army, maybe they can bring him in, put the fear of their gods, maybe like Zeus or somebody warlike like that, and all would be well. Not a big deal. This is something that they could manage. The Jewish authorities, well, they had experienced these so-called prophets for years, and nothing had ever come of it. Why now? What difference would it make? Prophecies? They didn't necessarily see anything in Jesus that would give them any reason to raise an eyebrow, up to now at least. He seemed gentle enough. Yeah, he had a few guys that had started following him, but most of them were of the uneducated variety, fishermen and, and people like that. Easy to control. This shouldn't be a big deal. In fact, they had heard Jesus was baptized by John. Wouldn't that have made John the one more important? No one with any sense would have been following this Jesus. On top of that, where had Jesus gone? He was baptized, and all of a sudden he just disappeared. For 40 days this man was gone. Oh, well, maybe he had just gone somewhere else to be the Messiah of somebody else. Who knows? Better them than us, they may have thought. Just one less worry we have. And John the Baptist, well... Another flash in the pan, probably, they thought. Herod wasn't too wild about him, but that sounded more like a personality conflict to the Pharisees. This John was going to go too far one time, and Herod would likely just come down on him hard, and that would be that. But then came Jesus, fresh off a 40-day temptation fest with Satan himself. But he beat Satan quoting Scripture as his defense all the way. Satan finally gave up, for the time being at least. Jesus defeated him here. I'll, I'll give you a little hint here, okay? This is going to be a reoccurring theme for the rest of the Scriptures and throughout eternity. At the end of the 40 days, the angels come to minister to Jesus. They refresh him, and then he's ready to go out. And change the world. That brings us up to what we're what we call the Sermon on the Mount. We, we've called it the Kingdom Manifesto. It's here that Jesus began to teach the people. You know, the ones we just talked about. I think we've described in some detail as to the backgrounds of, of a lot of these folks who might have been listening in this time period that Jesus gave this legendary sermon. For this monologue, this dissertation that Jesus just gave to the people were the building blocks of faith. Their faith and our faith. Sure, they knew God. They knew what the, what the Pharisees and the rabbis and all taught them every time they were in the synagogue. But if you look at just how Jesus began to teach here, it wasn't about thou shalt not. It wasn't about the constricting, confining pressure of keeping the law or face eternal separation. On top of that, it was a somewhat fluid law, always changing. Don't let the Pharisees get caught in breaking their own laws or, or they could go and change the law right there as they stood there. It's called fencing the law. 
Maybe there was a, even a, a, a mental pressure that they would add on saying, if you don't comply to the law, the rest of your family is, and you will, you will not have this eternal peace along with your family. Family was very big in the Israelite time. It was, in fact, maybe one of the most important things that they had for themselves. They didn't have a whole lot. All they had was each other. The people had to adhere to a law that was virtually hopeless to keep satisfactory. Eternal life for them, as hopeless as it appeared to them, as it was made to appear to them, may have just been a welcome relief in comparison to trying to keep the law that the Pharisees had created. But then came Jesus. Teaching immediately at the beginning, evidently of his three-year ministry. Now, not the thou shalt nots of their forefathers, as we said a minute ago, but the blessed are statements of what life could be about. For the few disciples that he would have at that time, Jesus reminds them of what they could and should be, salt and light to the world. He even goes so far, and here might have been a red flag, Number one for the Pharisees and the chief and the high priests. But he tells the people he didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. You know, he might have said something like that and you could have heard a collective sigh of relief by the Jewish leaders who might be happening to listen in at that particular moment. But it was short-lived. For Jesus immediately tells them, I came to fulfill the law. Now he goes on to tell the listeners that those who do and teach the law will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But then the bombshell. For I tell you, he says, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. And I believe he underscored never when he said that. Now wait a minute, what? Don't you know there had to be confusion right then from the Pharisees and, and the chief and the high priests? Jesus continues, to, to many anyway, for what would seem like an eternity he kept talking. Many of the Pharisees and the other Jewish officials may have been dazed right there in their tracks, not believing what they were hearing from this man. Maybe some gathered the strength to walk away. But maybe some of these Pharisees, ones like Nicodemus from John 3 fame, maybe they stuck around to hear Jesus out before they began to make decisions about him. Just another prophet, huh? I don't know. In essence, Jesus gave many who heard him a pathway to something that they had not had before. Hope. A new way to live. A way even Jesus said would have its ups and downs. He even gave them promises that if they live the life that he will show them how to live. Granted it would be a difficult road to travel. But they would have an eternal life the likes of which they would never be able to understand until they became a part of it. But they had to beware. False prophets would come and try to lead them astray. And those who did would see an eternity of being tossed into an eternal fire. Depart from me, 
Jesus told them, I never knew you. But if they build their faith on Jesus' words, they would have an eternal security. And a lot to absorb when just hours before, think about this, just hours before, many of them probably had never even heard of the name of Jesus. And yet when Jesus finished these crowd, or these words, the crowds were astonished at his teachings. They knew there was something different. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You have to wonder <laughs> what that said about the scribes with that being specifically mentioned, you know. A lot of them must have stayed on to hear more because in chapter 8, it's eight, verse 1, it says that great crowds followed him. We talked a bit about a number of these groups who were in all likelihood in those throngs <clears throat> that I would bet grew more and more even as he talked. People went off to get their friend, their, their, their parent, their co-worker, maybe even their boss. Might even have been, if they were brash enough, they might even have gone to get their local rabbi to come and hear this Jesus. Come and hear this man, they were saying. He talks like no one I've ever heard before. Do you know what we've done here this morning? We've described nearly every one of us in one way or another. That includes you and me. But you see, after hearing about Jesus and then hearing Him for themselves, every person there had to make a decision about Jesus Christ. Even from as many varied backgrounds as we've just talked about. What do I do with Him? Do I simply believe in Him after having lived my life on my own as best I can for as long as I have before? Wow, that, that's... Certainly takes me out of the equation for sure, doesn't it? Do I take him into consideration knowing that maybe he does have my best interest at heart? But does he understand how hard it would be for me to leave my friends, maybe even my family, behind? Surely he doesn't know how hard my life has been and how I have done so many things wrong in my life. I have sinned so ingrained into my life, I could never be forgiven for them all. Or maybe like the Pharisees and the chief and the high priest and a boatload of other people who heard Jesus, but see him for who they think he is, a rabble rouser, a flash in the pan, here today, gone tomorrow, they simply overlook him and go on about their business. Now, you see, before we knew Jesus, we had no idea that he spoke with such authority. We didn't know he could even talk about us without even mentioning our name. But after we heard Him, maybe even before we accepted Him as Lord and Savior of our lives, we knew there was something different about Him. And we too decided to follow Him. But maybe there are others of you today who stand at the crossroad. Do, accept, do I accept Him or, or do I not? And after even that, making that decision, you still have questions to ask yourself each day. Do I follow Him today? 
or do I not? Do I follow him the rest of my life? Or do we part ways? Are you astonished at his teachings? Does he have authority in your life? I think those are two questions that we all have to answer before he becomes our teacher and Messiah. And even afterward, as I just said a little bit, a minute ago, every day of our lives. If you look at chapter 8, after the kingdom manifesto, you'll see Jesus went about healing, calming storms, telling others of the cost that would come with following him. He does so with us even today. He waits to heal us of our spiritual wounds and calming the storms that are in our lives. But he tells us that following him ain't going to be easy. And yet he tells us to come and follow him. He even tells us in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, he says. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And here's another promise, a great promise. And you will find rest for your souls. And his assurance to us, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Would you do it? Would you follow him today, tomorrow, and the rest of your life? As those all who heard Jesus that first time, we must draw our own conclusions and answer those questions of who Jesus Christ truly is to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Lessons we can learn from so many. It is so easy for us to look back and say, you know, had we been there, we'd have done this or that or, or whatever. And yet, Father, each and every day, we come to you anew, facing you once more, learning more about you each day. Where your grace is fresh and new to us each and every day, our decision to follow you comes almost as a challenge to us every day. So much in the world that gets in our way, just as Satan plans. So we ask you today, would you be with us? Would you continue to strengthen us? Would you continue to help us to make that decision each day to follow you? And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.